Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, we're met with a, a trio of very familiar stories. They're meant to be read together as a trio, though often they're preached separately. And then we miss the whole thrust of the um, why Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, grouped the three stories together. So um, instead of going in-depth into each story, we're, we're just going to look at those three together and hit the main point this morning. I think you'll be blessed, and it'll really pre- uh, prepare our hearts for Christmas this year. Luke chapter 5. Let me read the stories to you so you can really um, hear how they all fit together. Now, it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses, But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you? Or to say, Get up and walk? But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. We've been teaching at the discipleship class Sunday afternoons, which is wrapping up. Our students are presenting the next two Sundays a passage of Scripture that the meaning of the text is critical. That the meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture. You don't have God's Word if you don't have the meaning of God's Word. Oh, you may have your book. You may have read it. But if you interpret God's Word to mean something it wasn't intended to mean, then you don't have God's Word. You've replaced it with your own ideas. When we come to narrative, to stories, historical stories, it's pretty easy to see the meaning. There's nothing hidden here. In the first story, a fisherman who didn't catch any fish caught a bunch of fish because Jesus has that kind of miracle working power. And in the second story, a leper is cleansed because Jesus has that kind of miracle working power. And in the third story, a paralytic is healed because Jesus has that kind of miracle-working power. And if he has the authority over fish and over leprosy and over paralysis, then when he says he can forgive sins, we ought to listen. So there's the sermon in a nutshell. We're tempted, though, always to come to the Bible with our own Ideas, our own agendas, our own needs, our own wants, our own preoccupations. And it'd be easy to go to that first story and maybe you're having financial trouble. Maybe the cupboards are bare this season. Advent conspiracy sounded like a great idea because you don't have any money to buy gifts with. And to see Jesus miraculously turn around Peter's situation. Remember, he's not out fishing like you and I. When I go fishing, I half expect to come home empty-handed. I'm just out there really to, for the peace and the quiet and for the nature. And, and if something happens to nibble on the line, all the better. This is his profession. This is how he puts food on the table. And this is his dignity. This is his identity. How humiliating and devastating to work all night and nothing to show for it. We come to the second story and perhaps you're dealing with chronic illness or maybe the stigma of something that has made you alone. Remember, leprosy at this time, according to the law of Moses, you would have to go live alone, away from the community. And so maybe this Christmas season, 
you are struggling with loneliness. And you see Jesus reaching out and touching this man. And you see his compassion. And certainly that is in play here. But it's not the main point of the story. And again, with the paralytic. Perhaps a chronic illness with no hope that it will ever be healed. Uh, Paralytics didn't get healed back then. Frankly, they don't get healed today either. Ask Johnny Erickson Tata. But don't stop there. I've heard these passages preached from the point of view of an evangelist. In fact, I remember last year, one of the Sunday school curriculums we used, good Sunday school curriculum, but for the little kids, they told the story of the paralytic, and the point of the story was, your friends can bring you to Jesus. So, the man couldn't get to Jesus on his own. And so his friends picked him up and carried him to Jesus. And likewise, we need to go out and find the people who can't get to Jesus, and we need to pick them up and we need to bring them to Jesus. And that'll preach, right? I'm always looking for an angle as a preacher. Like, ooh, that'll preach. And that is not at all what the passage is about. But you see how we can make God's word say just about anything we want to. And often that is confused for, wow, that preacher really saw something there that I didn't see. Well, sometimes that's not a good thing. Jesus makes it clear the point of him working miracles so that you will know I have authority to forgive sins. Get up and walk. You are clean. Let down your net over here. So let's look a little more closely at each of the three stories and I'll show you the connection between each of them. In all three cases, there's a desperate man who has an encounter with Jesus. A desperate man who has an encounter with Jesus. A fisherman, a leper, and a paralytic. You know, it's like the beginning of, of a, a good story, right? The desperation of a fisherman with no fish. That's, that's Peter. The fisherman who's worked all night and nothing to show for it. He doesn't want to even go home. Honey, how did it go today? Don't ask. What's for dinner? Don't ask. How are we going to pay the bills? Don't, don't ask. And every man in this room has probably been in that situation one time or another. And it strikes at the heart of your identity as provider. So he's going to stick around and clean his nets. Mend his nets. While the other fishermen are going in to the market to sell their fish, he's got to find something else to preoccupy himself with. And he's a bit desperate. But Jesus walks into the picture. And it's not the first time he's met Jesus. We know he's met Jesus before. And Jesus has even called Peter to follow him. And Peter is following in a sense. He's captivated by this man. He's flattered that a rabbi would ask him to follow him. When a rabbi chose you to be a student, that was a high honor. 
But nobody chooses a lowly fisherman. Rabbis choose the intellectual, the uh, elite, the um, connected. So the new rabbi in town has called Peter, the fisherman, to follow him. And he hears Jesus' teaching, and we see again and again in the scriptures that Jesus teaches like no one else. He teaches as one with authority. It says he's teaching the word of God. We think word of God and think Bibles, but the construction in the Greek is the word that comes from God. He's speaking directly on behalf of God. He's not like the other rabbis who quote Rabbi so-and-so, who quotes Rabbi so-and-so, who quotes Rabbi so-and-so. He is speaking in ways nobody is used to hearing. I don't speak this way. I'm quoting the Bible, and I'm giving you the meaning of the Bible. Jesus is just speaking fresh revelation, the Word of God. And the crowds are getting so thick that he needs to create some distance between him and the crowd so he could teach. And how clever to get into a fishing boat, push off 10, 20 yards out, and preach to the crowd on the banks. And Peter must have been excited that the Lord would choose to use his boat. Very flattering. But then Jesus does the unexplainable in Peter's eyes. Remember, you've got to put yourself in the sandals of Peter here. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. <laughs> You're the teacher. I'm the fisherman. <laughs> it's not going to work. We fished at night. That's when the fish come to the surface in the cool of the night. In the heat of the day, in the hot Middle Eastern sun, the fish are going to go down deep. And you don't know where they're all pooling together. People didn't fish in the middle of the day. They fished at night. But you're the master. And the word here, master, isn't the typical word in the Greek for master. It's a more generic term like, hey, you're the boss. You're the boss. Sure, we'll cast out over here. Whatever. And we love Jesus to be part of our lives until he gets personal. Oh, yes, Jesus, I give you my all. Even when he tells you how to run your marriage, how to run your family, how to run your employment. Well, no, that's where I'm master of my domain. No, Jesus is Lord. If he's not Lord there, he isn't Lord anywhere. And so, this is the area of Peter's life that sets him apart from the crowd. He's, he's a prideful fisherman. He's good at what he does. He, he runs the show. He's in a partnership with James and John, but the implication is that he's in charge. James and John, you'll see the three of them jockeying for position throughout Jesus' ministry. Who's the greatest? Who's first? Who's going to sit on your right and left? Remember these stories? So for Jesus to step into Peter's boat was flattering. To say, I'm going to show you how to fish, is a bit insulting. 
but he's the uh, miracle worker, okay. And immediately, the biggest catch he's ever seen in his life. And notice this, Jesus' miracles are always immediately. Sets him apart from all the modern day posers. Immediately. This catch is so big, he has to call James and John over, and it begins to sink their boat as well. And so for any prosperity preacher who wants this to be a prosperity text, the amazing thing is that when Jesus says, follow me, you'll be catching men from now on, they leave everything. They leave the greatest financial windfall they've ever seen to follow Jesus. We've seen Jesus' authority over a fever. He rebuked Peter's mother-in-law's fever. He didn't rebuke his mother-in-law. Don't get any ideas. He He rebuked the fever. He rebuked a demon. Jesus has authority over illness. He has authority over the demonic realm. Now we see him have authority over nature. In his omniscience, he knew where the fish were. In his omnipotence, he put them in the net. I don't think it was so much they caught fish more so than Jesus had the fish invade their nets. And we see this act of humility that is rare for Peter. Fell down at Jesus' feet, literally fell down into his lap in the boat. Couldn't look him eye to eye. Go away from me, Lord. Calls him Lord now instead of the generic term master. I'm in the presence of divinity. And we see this all throughout Scripture. Anytime someone has an encounter with God, they fall directly on their face. Isaiah and Isaiah 6, John and Revelation, Joshua before the angel of the Lord fell on their face. Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. I'm in the presence of perfection, I'm in the presence of holiness. Away from me, I'm a sinful man. Isn't it interesting that we don't want God near us when we need Him most? We want God to be far away from us when we're in sin. So we can stay in sin, I guess. Or we hide from Him like Adam and Eve. We, 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 we want to be far from Him. In our pride, in our self-righteousness, we want not to be reminded of our fallenness. And yet, as John MacArthur points out, we're never closer to God than when we believe we should be farthest away from Him. When when we recognize that we don't deserve to be close to God, ironically, is when we are the closest to Him. Isn't that beautiful? It's the people who think they're righteous by their own merits, who think they deserve to be in the presence of God when in actuality they are far, far away from Him. God is looking for a contrite heart. Humility. 
Peter was a prideful man when he would compare himself to other men. But the difference between Peter and Judas at the end of the day was Peter humbled himself before God. He knew his place before Jesus. Judas may not have been as outwardly brash as Peter, but on the inside he was a prideful man who never humbled himself. Judas was the kind of guy who looked to hitch his wagon to Jesus' star. But it turns out, in his mind, he had hitched his star to Jesus' wagon. And when the wagon wasn't heading towards the gravy train, Judas unhitched his star. I don't have any use for this guy anymore. He was in it for the money. And Jesus began talking about giving it all away for the kingdom. Jesus' miracles always have a greater purpose. Always have a greater purpose than just the miracle in and of itself. The point of this miracle was because he was going to call Peter, James, and John to follow him. And they would eventually be apostles. And so he says to them, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. Again, John MacArthur points out the verb catching in the Greek, zogreo means to catch alive. And he comments, these men who have been catching fish unto death their their whole lives would now be catching men unto life. Beautiful. We move from a desperate fisherman with no fish to a desperate leper with no friends. Desperate leper with no friends. I know we focus on the leprosy. It's a terrible disease. It's called Hansen's disease. We now know that it's a bacterial infection. It attacks the nerves. The worst thing about the disease is that you, you, you can't feel pain, so you end up picking at sores and tearing yourself apart. I know we think of fingers and toes falling off, but the worst thing about the disease is that you, lur- you lose that sense of, uh, of danger hey, I need to stop doing this. And so they kind of end up destroying themselves. The disease can be healed. It's a bacterial infection. Our bodies can fight off bacterial infections. And often the disease did resolve itself. Those with leprosy were commanded by the law of Moses to leave the community. And you had to live apart. So don't focus on the disease, focus on the loneliness. This is the worst part of the disease in your hour of need, being cut off from compassion, cut off from the loving touch of others. You know, when you're sick, when you were little and wanted your mommy come sit by you and stroke your hair and pat your back and tell you it's going to be okay and really what at least half of the nursing profession ought to be. Wish nurses had more time to just sit and render compassion. What a beautiful thing you could do to visit the sick, to, to, 
visit the sick. When I go to visit the sick and pray for them, often it's just having somebody there to sit with them and, and listen is what they're looking for. You could do that. It's a wonderful ministry. Or visit those who are homebound and just sit with them and listen to them. And so, this man is desperate to return to society, to return to relationship. It's not so much that he wants to be healed. In fact, he doesn't say, heal me. He says, make me clean. The reason they had to leave the community was less fear of contagion and more that it was a picture of God's holiness and that sin must be purged out of the community. God used this illness as a picture to Israel that they needed to be a a pure, undefiled, clean people. And when the leprosy resolved, the leper would come back to the priest and the priest would check them out and declare them clean. And then they had to go through a series of sacrifices. And then once those sacrifices were made and atonement was made, they were fully restored back into the community with no stigma, with no, hey, isn't that Bill? Didn't he have leprosy last month? No, full restoration back into the community. This is what this man was seeking. Full restoration back into the community, to have friends, to be around human beings. And he's so desperate that he violates Mosaic law by coming into the city. They're supposed to stay far clear of the city, and if they came near any human being, they're to yell, Unclean! Unclean! And certainly no Pharisee, no holy man would come near a leper and risk defilement. And so we saw with Peter, Jesus does the unexplainable. But with this leper, Jesus does the unpredictable. He touches him. He could have healed him without touching him, but he touches him. I've heard many sermons on this text and the whole focus of the sermon is on Jesus touching and that we can be the hands of Jesus. I guess if you do the next sermon, we could be the feet of Jesus for the paralytics. So we could be the hands of feet of Jesus. I don't think that's the focus, though that is a side point, an important point. That Jesus is willing to bypass social conventions To love others. And we should be that way as Christians as well. Mark records, moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing to be cleansed. Of course, Jesus would suffer and experience loneliness loneliness like nobody else on this planet. Abandoned by his friends, scorned by all of humanity, And with the sins of humanity on himself on the cross, even his heavenly father turning his back, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus understands your loneliness. And so the man is made clean. I love the man's humility. If you are willing, you come to Jesus for anything, that should preface 
our requests. If you are willing, if in your providence and in your wisdom, this would be good for me, if you are willing, alleviate my temporary suffering. Knowing that in Christ, all of our temporary suffering will be alleviated in heaven. Like Matt said, those things that are unshakable are waiting for us in heaven. We can withstand and endure temporary light affliction. And I know in extreme cases to think of your suffering as temporary light affliction may be difficult, but the rest of the verse says, compared to the eternal weight of glory waiting for us. If all you have is what's here on this earth, then suffering indeed is cruel. And how could a loving God allow such a thing? But he has so much more in store for his children. Amen? Amen. And he ordered the man to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest. Remember, Jesus' miracles always have a greater purpose. What could be greater than healing this man of leprosy and alleviating his suffering? How about forgiveness of sins? Our greatest need. Go to the priest. Show him you are clean. Commentators argue over three different reasons why Jesus may have said this. And I think all three are in play. Why pick one? One, to obey the law of Moses. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, right? The law says now go to the priest, have them inspect you, make your sacrifices, be declared clean. For the second reason, which is that is the way this man's going to be reinstated back into society. It's a compassionate command. But thirdly, for a testimony to them. He knew that the religious leaders would oppose him, oppose his teaching, call him a lawbreaker. You, you work on the Sabbath, you heal on the Sabbath, you pick heads of grain on the Sabbath. This was to validate his authority and demonstrate that he was a law abider. So word gets out that Jesus heals a leper and now the crowds are getting out of control. And it says this this beautiful line, if you read too fast, you'll miss it. But he himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. I, I hope that marks your life. Even in the busyness of the Christmas season, I hope you find time, make time, not find it, make time to slip away, be alone with Jesus. So we saw the desperation of a fisherman with no fish and a leper with no friends and now the desperation of a paralytic with no feet. Well, he has feet, but I was looking for a word that began with F to finish the alliteration and this works. So the desperation of a paralytic with no feet. He might as well not have feet. He can't walk. His friends have to carry him around on a mat. Peter could possibly have a better catch the next night and the leper lepers get healed it often would resolve itself wasn't necessarily a death sentence but a paralytic has no hope of walking 
And you say, that's, that, that's terrible. And it is terrible. But there's something more terrible going on here. And we don't see it because of our Western sensibilities. We've grown up in a Christianized culture. We understand the forgiveness of sins. In fact, we take it for granted. And I think probably more than half the people in this country that profess Christ never really stop to consider themselves a sinner. And so they don't see the beauty of the gift of Christ to finally be told your sins are forgiven. But in this society, the theology of the day is that your suffering is directly related to your sin. Your suffering is directly related to your sin, and the blessings in your life are directly proportional to your righteousness. So if Peter had a bad night of fishing, he was probably thinking, I must have sinned, I just need to, conf-, you know, I, and then I'll have a better day fishing. And if he came home without fish one day, the other fishermen would say, I wonder what Peter did the other night for God to punish him in that way. I mean, they have a much bigger view of God's sovereignty than we do. Boy, what did that leper do to earn leprosy? And what did that paralytic do to be punished every day of his life with no chance of parole? Dude, repent. And the proof of his repentance would only be what? That he could walk. How cruel. What a cruel system. Job, his friends, hey, you're not better. There must still be sin. And he's like, I don't think there is. I mean, nothing this bad. And you see the three things that were taken away from people here. Their money, their family, and their health. And what was taken from Job, his money, his family, and then Satan says, yeah, well, you, you touched his money and his family, but you didn't let me touch him. So God says, go ahead and touch his health. I mean, those are the three big ones we want. Money, our health, and relationships. Comedian like Brian Regan said he lost his luggage at the airport and he went to the desk to collect, sign the form, and hopefully they'll find his luggage, and they gave him an essentials kit to get him by. And he's like, oh, these are the essentials. What's in it? Food, shelter, and love. No, it's a a toothbrush and some other sundry items. That's what we want. We want our needs taken care of, which usually takes money. We want our health. We want our relationships. And so you see how these three stories connect. And in their theology, the reason these men were being punished was because of their sin. And of course, the Pharisees had money and they had friends and they had their health. And why not? We're righteous. And the rich get richer spiritually and the poor get poorer. And you say, well, who, who, 
Where did this theology come? Are you sure this is? Yeah, this is the way it was. John chapter 9. Remember the story? I have it up on the screen for you. They passed by. They saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? Somebody sinned. The guy's blind. Doesn't make sense to us, though, because we know this kid's been blind from birth. So did he sin in the womb or something? Because it seems a little harsh to punish someone your whole life for the sins of your parents. And Jesus says it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents in this case. In this case, it was so the works of God might be displayed in him. And why do I say in this case? Because the theology isn't all wrong. Listen to me. The Bible teaches us that all suffering, all illness, all hardship, all evil is due to sin. But personal suffering isn't always due to personal sin. Job teaches us that. There was more going on behind the scenes. Now, sometimes personal sin leads to personal suffering. You spend your money foolishly, you're going to suffer. You get inebriated, you drive, you get in an accident, you, you get paralyzed, you suffer. And yet, sometimes you get inebriated, get in the car, get in an accident, and the other guy suffers, and that doesn't seem fair. And so, not all personal sin leads to your own personal suffering. Oftentimes, personal sin leads to other people's suffering. But all suffering is due to sin. In Jesus' case, it was our sin that led to his suffering. It wasn't his own sin. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so we could become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus said the unexplainable to Peter and he said the um, unexpected to the leper, but then he does the unthinkable. He publicly pronounces somebody's sins forgiven. Nobody's ever done this. Nobody had the authority to do this. And yet, when you think about the predicament, the desperation of this paralytic, the most sensible and most compassionate thing anyone could ever say to this poor man is, God can forgive your sins. You don't have to walk around anymore saying, I'm, I'm a sinner with no hope of forgiveness. Because the proof would be me walking. And he probably confessed his sins repeatedly. What is it going to take? What is it going to take? What am I missing, Lord? Why am I still being punished? I know many of you are kind of scoffing at this theology, but there are many in our midst, even this morning, who walk through life this way. God's happy with me. Everything's going good. And then when, when things go wrong, I don't know what I did wrong, God. Why are you punishing me? That's a cruel father. Now, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And when we deserve discipline, praise God for his discipline. And he disciplines us through his suffering, through our suffering. But when you know Christ, God's love for you is unshakable. 
Don't let your circumstances convince you that he's not loving you today. He's loving you. Sure, he's disappointed when we sin. It's an offense to him. and He's died for us, saved us, called us into his family, and we still have trouble trusting him that the righteous life he desires for us will bring us ultimate good. And when we sin, we're still saying, I don't trust you, God, for my happiness and fulfillment. And we listen to the devil again. But in Christ, it's not this, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves you in Christ. He loves you. Your sins are forgiven. Not because I said so, but because Christ says He who believes in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what humanity needed to hear these words. Your sins are forgiven. After how many sacrifices? One. Your sins are forgiven. How many lambs? How many turtle doves? How many, how many, how many? One and for all. Put your faith in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. Well, he can't say that. And they said that in their, their hearts, and Jesus in his omniscience knew what they were muttering. Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, from a heavenly perspective, it's harder to say your sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. I can forgive you when you sin against me, and you can forgive me when I sin against you. But only God can forgive us when we sin against him. And frankly, all sin is against God. When you sin against me and I sin against you, we've sinned first and foremost against God. From a heavenly perspective, it's harder to say your sins are forgiven. Only God can accomplish that. But from an earthly perspective, and Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees on their terms, what's easier to say? It's actually easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can prove it. Harder to say, get up and walk. Because they're going to have to actually get up and walk to prove you have that authority. And so he snaps them out of their fog and brings all the attention onto this most important point where our attention should be. How does one know his sins are forgiven? And now that he has their attention, he says, so that you will know that the Son of Man And he uses that messianic title from Daniel. Has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, get up and walk. And immediately, he got up and walked. And I love this in the Greek. It literally says, he picked up the thing that had been picking him up. Isn't that wonderful? He picked up the thing that had been picking him up. I bet he carried that thing around for months. Remember this? Remember this thing that was carrying me all? 
My sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. The stigma is erased. The shame, the burden is gone. That man, Jesus, said, my sins are forgiven, and I believe him. Do you believe? Do you want? Do you care about your unforgiveness? You should be, and I should be, the fourth character in the story. You don't see him, but he's there. It's the desperation of the sinner with no forgiveness. We don't feel the desperation because most people in this room know Jesus. You've known the beauty and the relief and the wonder and the awe and the happiness of knowing my sins are forgiven. And when that happens, all your other problems kind of become insignificant. Oh, they're significant. Loneliness is significant. Poverty is significant. Physical illness is significant. Jesus cares about these things. See the compassion? But he knows what your greatest need is. And he's here to tell us, in Christ, through faith in him, your sins can be forgiven. If God is for me, who could be against me? You need to be like the publican, the tax collector. That's the publican, not a republican. The the publican, the tax collector. The Pharisee went to the temple, Jesus said, and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, i.e., I don't need sins forgiven because I don't sin. I'm not a swindler, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer, not like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing some distance away because we're never closer to God than when we think we deserve to be far away. And that's the right heart attitude. I don't deserve God's love. It's a free gift. Beating on his breast, wouldn't even look up to heaven, have mercy on me, the sinner. Not a sinner. Stop comparing yourself to everyone else. Because then you'll be tempted to say, well, at least I'm not as bad a sinner as that guy. The sinner. The sinner. Beware the therapeutic gospel that doesn't save. We've warned you of false gospels. We've warned you of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. We've warned you of the social gospel. Hey, save money this Christmas, buy clean drinking water, but make sure you give it to an organization who shares the gospel while they're giving water. No sense going to hell with clean drinking water. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness. Jesus is the living water. You drink from him and you'll never thirst again. We warned you of the liberation gospel that liberates you from sexism and chauvinism and every ism under the sun, but never liberates you from sin and death. But probably the worst false gospel in our culture today is the therapeutic gospel, which makes everybody a victim and Jesus becomes your great therapist in the sky and you poor thing, come here 
And he listens and listens and listens and listens, but there's no resolution. It's like a good therapist. That way they can keep billing you every week. No repentance, no change. Even in our suffering, there's always, we have to be on the lookout for our sinful response to our own suffering. There's always something to be repenting of, right? There's always something. No therapeutic gospel here. Jesus can meet our financial needs. He can meet our relational needs. He can meet our physical needs. But first and foremost, he's here to meet your greatest need. Poverty is a great need, but Jesus said, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Loneliness is a great need, but Jesus said, if you have faith in him, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. I'm with you. Sickness is a great need, but Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient. He doesn't always heal our physical diseases. He will, in Christ, in eternity, heal all our diseases, meet all of our needs. But our greatest need is forgiveness. So close with this quote. I can't figure out if Max Lucado said it, or D.A. Carson, or Roy Lesson. They've all been attributed to this quote, which probably means a woman wrote it and she didn't get any credit. (laughs) But listen to this. I really like this. If our greatest need was political, God would have sent us a politician. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a Savior. Amen. Focus on our need for a Savior, and you're going to have a great Christmas. Father, help us do just that. Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.